Well, <clears throat> we are going to look at John chapter 9 today. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. We're going to do what they said can't be done. So let's look at John chapter 9. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's from Isaiah chapter 61. And those are among the works that, that God, that, that we've, as we have worked our way through John's gospel, those are among the works of God that Jesus works. He has come to do the work of bringing good news to the poor. He has come to do the work of binding up the brokenhearted. He's come to do the work of proclaiming liberty and, and to comfort to turn your mourning into praise, that you may be called oaks of righteousness, that he may be glorified. Additionally, in addition to those things from Isaiah 61, in, in Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet tells us that there will come a time when God will come to save his people, and then, he says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And Jesus says essentially, Behold your God. So turn, if you haven't already, turn to John chapter 9. Uh, last week as we looked at the beginning of this chapter, really just those first five verses, we saw that the, the foundation that Jesus was laying for this miracle, we saw this sign that he was about to perform and the, and the foundation that he laid for that. He even tells us why he's going to do it. John gives us a little bit of insight in recording for us this, this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples and so again, we saw last week that this is more than just a, uh, this is more about a spiritual healing. This is more than just a, a physical healing. This is much more spiritual than physical. And so yes, Jesus gave this man eyesight. But more importantly, he gave him belief. So I want to read John chapter 9 again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I I do not know. They brought the Pharisees uh, to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's just stop and pray again. 
Lord, I pray that you would um, give us the sight to see you here. Give us ears to hear you. Lord, we believe that you speak to us through your word, and so we ask that we would understand, that we would hear, that we would obey, and that we would praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter, John 9, is uh, sign number six of the seven signs that John gives us in this book. Now, certainly there are more than seven signs, but there are specifically seven that John gives us, the next one uh, being the raising of Lazarus from the dead in a couple of chapters, chapter 11, I think. Uh, So this is number six of seven. And these are given, he explicitly tells us near the end of the book, these are given that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And specifically, this sign is a sign that illustrates that Jesus is the light of the world. He says that in verse 5, that in him there is no darkness, as we saw in the introduction to John's gospel way back in the first few verses of chapter 1. And so this physical healing is a sign not only of the, of the true identity of the one who heals, of the healer, but also of the, of the true spiritual healing that comes only through him, only in Christ alone, namely repentance and faith. So if the first five verses lay the foundation for this sign as we've seen, as we saw last week, then it should be noteworthy here that after Jesus actually heals this man, he, he largely recedes into the background for much of the rest of the chapter as the, as the community comes to grips with what has just happened. Jesus kind of recedes into the background. He's quoted a couple of times. But this is, what, this is the community. This is the neighbors and the officials talking about what has just happened. So as we work our way through this, um, what I'd like to do is kind of break it up into manageable chunks so that we can see clearly uh, the implications of the gospel and what those are for those who have come into contact with the light of the world that shines in the darkness. So here's how the the outline will go this morning. It just simply follows the storyline. I'm going to give you seven points, I guess, but it's really just an outline of of the chapter. The first is the miracle. It's verses 6 and 7. You can see the miracle actually occurring, the sign, the wonder, in verses 6 and 7. Then uh, the interaction with the neighbors in verses 8 to 12. So the miracle, then the neighbors. Then in verses 13, and 13 kind of can go either way, verses 13 to 17 are the Pharisees. The neighbors bring the man to the Pharisees. Then there's a, a kind of a longer portion in verses 24 to 34 that really focuses on the man and what he has to say. And then we see, really, it just kind of zooms in on Jesus and the man, verses 35 to 39, and their interaction. And then there's sort of a side comment at the end of the chapter, uh, really a little bit more condemnation for the Pharisees. It's Jesus and the Pharisees in verses 40 and 41. So that's kind of the chunks that we're going to take today. And as we continue working through this chapter, when we we get here in verses 6 and 7 to the the miracle itself, 
It's important to note that that John has told us up in verse 1, and we also will see later with the interaction with the man's parents in verses 19 and 20, it's important to note that this man was born blind. He was born blind. He didn't have some kind of illness that made him blind. He didn't have some sort of infection that, that somehow the combination of Jesus' saliva and the, and the special dirt, uh, wherever, whatever street they were on in, in, in Jerusalem, somehow the, the pH levels and all of that somehow fixed this man's illness. He was born blind. Most likely he had some sort of birth defect in his eyes. They did not work. They never worked. Reading recently a biography, uh, an old biography of Fanny Crosby, who wrote 20 of the, I think, 20 or 25 hymns in our hymnal. She wrote a ton more than that, but a lot of the common hymns that we know. Um, she was blind, very famously, um, trusted in Christ. She was blind from about six months, she had gotten sick actually fairly common uh, about 100 uh, to 150 years ago. They tried different um, ways to to treat uh, sickness, and it would end up with permanent damage. This man was born blind. That's an important point. The point in all of this is that this sign cannot be explained away by anything except the power of God. As far as his eyesight was concerned, this man was beyond the help of others. He was resigned to live a life of darkness, and it's all he had ever known. He had no memory of green grass. He had no memory of his mother's face. He had never seen those things. But remember, as we look at this, this is all about salvation. He was born in darkness, which we understand throughout John's gospel to mean sin, to mean iniquity, transgression. The Bible tells us that this is a a common experience for all men. David confesses in Psalm 51 verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. From the point of conception, he was in darkness. He was in sin. And so this man was born in darkness and he wasn't, he wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't, he wasn't seeking the, the light, the spiritual light. All he knew was darkness and yet Jesus sees him. And in, in one of Jesus' more elaborate signs, one of his more elaborate miracles, he heals the guy. Jesus sees him and heals him. Now with that background knowing that this is, this is really about his soul, not about his eyes, we should focus more carefully on the, on the brilliance of the glory of God as we walk through this. Remember, this whole story, I'm going to keep hammering this home, this whole story is about salvation. It's about how man can do nothing to find his own way to God. And so God comes to man for no reason, by the way, For no reason except for his overflowing grace and mercy. For no reason except for his abundant love and kindness. Because of his faithfulness. Because of who God is. And so God comes to man with the power to save him from darkness. Paul will tell us 
in Romans, verses, really verse 16 of chapter 1, but let me read 16 and 17. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Think of that phrase. The good news of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. You are a Christian, if you're a Christian. It is because of the kindness of God. One of my favorite um, hymns, it's an old hymn, and we've been singing it for a couple of years now. It's by Isaac Watts. How sweet and awful, and it's, you know this, it's A-W-E-F-U-L, awful. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. This is about worship. While all our hearts and all of our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why was I saved? Why did God show kindness and grace to me? Why did he show it to this guy? Salvation is the kindness of God. The answer is to the glory of God. For the glory of God. And so salvation is the kindness of God. The kindness toward this man, kindness toward us. This man's eyesight was restored, or he was given, and that wasn't even restored, he was given eyesight because of the kindness of Jesus. But even more so, again, this is about his soul. So let's look at the miracle, verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, and anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Having said these things... John tells us, namely, just that sentence right before that, that he was the light of the world. Jesus goes on to illustrate his point, that he is the light of the world. Now, the question that inevitably um, comes to mind here at this point in verses 6 and 7 is what in the world is the deal with the spit and the mud? What is going on here? We've seen him turn water into wine. Back in, what is it, chapter 4, 2. Back in chapter 2. He turns water into wine. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't wave over it or grab the pots and shake that. He doesn't do it. He just turns water into wine. We, we saw him heal an official's son from some distance away. Go home. Your son is healed. We've heard him tell the paralyzed man, just say to him, take up your bed and walk. All those things he did with just words. Why then does he now heal this man like this? Well, the answer is really simple. We don't know. We don't know. John doesn't tell us why Jesus did this, just that it happened like this. Um, 
but I have to give you a little bit more than that, right? This is one, this is a guess. I think it's a good guess. Help us to kind of satisfy some curiosity. And and I think it's actually a theological um, understanding too. Helps us to understand what's really happening here. And I have to stress that it's mostly speculation. John doesn't say, but there is some good uh, thinking for this. There's a connection here with the dust that becomes mud. And Genesis 2, 7, in which man is said to have been made by God from the dust of the earth. And here Jesus uses this dust, this, this mud, to remake this guy's eyes or to make them complete. Jesus creates his eyes, finishes him, makes him complete. Um, if we're hung up on that, it, I think it's a good guess and maybe... A good guess is any, maybe better than most. I think it's better than most. But don't miss the point on this. The emphasis here is not on the mud. The emphasis here is not on the spit. The emphasis here is on go and wash. Go and wash. This would have been difficult for a blind man to do. Jesus could have simply commanded the man to see. Look around, he could have said. Open your eyes, he said to the man who was, uh, had been uh, uh, paralyzed for 38 years, get up, take up your mat and walk. He just commanded him. He could have done that here. Instead, he says, go and wash before he could come back seeing, verse 7 says. He came back seeing. It seems like Jesus put the mud on this guy's eyes so that he'd have something to wash off. So that there would be a response to his command. But there's even more here because John wants to be sure that we understand even the name of the pool, Siloam. And and John even says that means scent. Don't miss that. There's a play on words in this as Jesus has sent this man to the pool named Scent. Think of it this way. As the sent one sends the man to the pool named Sent. But this is even more significant because in the Old Testament, this name, this word Siloam in Hebrew is Shiloh. And Shiloh is a prophetic name for Christ. It's a prophetic illusion for the Christ. Let me give you two examples of Shiloh being about Jesus, a word, a name, a prophetic name of Christ. In Genesis 49, verse 10, and I want to read this to you from the New American Standard because the ESV translates it differently, and it's not as accurate, I don't think. In Genesis 49, verse 10, a prophecy of the lion of the tribe of Judah, of Christ, it says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Until the sent one comes. Until Shiloh comes. And then another prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, it says this, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Now think about this. Go and wash... In the pool of Siloam, which means scent. 
Isaiah 6, 7 says, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. So there's a couple of different layers of prophecy in there, but I want you to see the waters of Shiloh that the people largely reject, the sent one. Shiloh will come and the people will reject him. They will reject his living water. But Jesus says to this man, he says, go to Siloam, go to Shiloh, go to the sent one and wash. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He said that all the way back in chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus, we could say it this way, Jesus is a true and better Shiloh, Siloam. Jesus is the sent one. So, of course, you can see a deeper spiritual meaning here. Go and wash. Peter will say essentially the same thing. In his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, but he's going to word it a little bit differently. He's going to say this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe. That's all this is. Jesus required this man to believe and to act on that belief. Go and wash. This is the message that Jesus continues to spread throughout John's gospel. We must believe in order to be saved. He said this just back in chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, at this point in the story, as we shift to the neighbors in verse 8, Jesus, as I said, he moves into the background. So look at verses 8 through 12. Let me read this next section. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I I don't know. There's There's a change in this man. There's actually a shocking change in this man. So shocking that when the neighbors, and that's probably literal, those who lived around him, those who lived around where he worked, where he begged, when they saw him, they were flabbergasted. This can't be the same guy. This can't be the same guy. Now, now you can imagine the scene in the neighborhood here in verses 8 to 12. This guy, this man, is up and doing things he'd never done before. He's walking around and he's looking at things he'd only ever touched before in his life. He's looking at things. He's looking at mom and dad. He's looking at his home. He's looking at things that we take totally for granted. Color. The dirt. The street. All the people. 
He's looking at things. For the first time, he sees his mom and dad. For the first time, he sees the faces of his his friends and these neighbors. For the first time, he sees the sky. He sees the dirt that he'd been sitting in. Probably he's looking for a mirror. But of course, he's never seen one, so he doesn't even know what a mirror looks like. There's no way that this didn't cause quite the commotion in his neighborhood. So much so that some of the people didn't even believe it was the same man. And while this is pretty straightforward here, I want to point out two details. First is at the very end of verse 9, where he says, I am the man. The, The literal translation there is, I am he. And in using this phrase... uh, This man is saying more than he knows. He's saying something Jesus would say. He's already, at least to a certain extent, identifying with Jesus. Now this is very subtle, but the way that he says this is the same way that Jesus says, I am. Right up in chapter 8. And Jesus will say even later. Jesus has already said, I am, several times in this storyline here. And even at the end of chapter 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Somehow, in some slight way, this man is already beginning to identify with Jesus. We're, We're supposed to see that. And then secondly, even in this, even in his subtle identification with Christ, the focus of the story is not on this man anymore. It's shifted to Christ already. Verse 12, where is he? I don't know. So far in this chapter, we're we're starting to catch glimpses of this man's conversion. We're starting to catch glimpses that this is so much more than simply a medical breakthrough. It's almost as if this man's conversion, his conversion to Christ is, is happening in slow motion which, by the way, is true more often than we realize, I believe. His his conversion is almost happening in slow motion throughout this chapter. So at this point, this man, who's anonymous throughout the chapter, we're never given his name. At this point, he acknowledges Jesus' name, and he attributes his newfound sight to him. Look, Look at verse 11. He answered, the man called Jesus. He made mud, anointed my eyes, and said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. But there in verse 12, their focus, instead of maybe a superstitious crowd would have thought there was something special about the water, like a fountain of youth, a fountain of sight. There must be something special about the water, but the neighbors didn't do that. Right there in verse 12, the the focus turns to Jesus. Oh, really? That's really what happened? Well, where is this man? Now, if this had happened in modern day, uh, we would wonder at the uh, marvels of modern medicine, right? We would wonder who the surgeon was. We would wonder who the doctor was who came up with a successful treatment. We would wonder which drug company was responsible and what the potential side effects were. 
But the neighbors understood this to not be a medical issue. This is a theological issue. Everyone knew who Jesus was at this point. They knew what his claims were and that the Pharisees were out to kill him. Jesus was a well-known person, a well-known man in the city of Jerusalem at this time. And so they take him to the theological experts there in verse 13. They're not looking for scientific answers. They're looking for theological answers. They take him to the religious leaders. And so now we turn to the Pharisees in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly born blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. The Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind, again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. So John adds this little bit of background information at the beginning of this in verse 14. Jesus has done this on the Sabbath. This is an important little detail that kind of brings the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees right to the forefront. He's done this to them before. So the last we read of the Pharisees, uh, they had used, they had, well, the last time we read of them at the end of chapter 8, they had stones in their hands wondering where he went, how he had escaped from them somehow. They weren't afraid to use those stones. But here they are in verse 15, and we find as the story picks up, this man is being questioned by the Pharisees. This isn't even intended to be a fair trial. And that's what this is this is a trial. And so they question him. Look again at the beginning of this. In verse 15, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, by, by all that we know, it's hard to read tone, right? We know that it's hard to read tone in a, like a text message, right? If you use all caps, it's understood to be shouting at someone. But maybe the caps lock was just stuck on, Right? It's hard to read tone in a text message or an email. And whether, uh, whether it's scripture or a text, sometimes it's hard to read tone. But, but his story here, his testimony, it's gotten much shorter. He's irritated. He's irritated with them. We, we can see that as he starts speaking down in verse 24 and on. But compare what he says here to what he said back in verse 11. Back then he had said, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And I went and I, and I washed and I received my sight. Here he said, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. How, how many times do I have to tell you people this? I, went, I want to go for a walk. I mean, you can just imagine this guy. He is irritated with them. I want to go for a walk and look at things. And I want to go by myself. I don't want to be led around by the hand. But once again, many of these Pharisees, they're hung up with the problem of the Sabbath. This is clearly a miracle. Clearly. And yet they're hung up on the law. I don't know if you caught the irony, the play on words in this. But, but look back in verse 4. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. And he said that on the Sabbath. 
He healed that man on the Sabbath. Again, he's done this to them before, back in chapter 5, 16 and 17. He says, and this is why, John writes, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my, my father is working until now, and I am working. And we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. In that case, back then in chapter 5, they were upset with him for healing a man on the Sabbath, this man who had been uh, an invalid for 38 years. And so the conclusion some of them come to here in verse 16, at least it's consistent. They view Sabbath breaking as a violation of the law. How could someone sent from God violate his law? That's sin, obviously. But the other sign of the the other side of the coin is right there. As the others argue back, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? These are actually the right questions. This is a debate they should have had. Because the law says in Deuteronomy 13, 1-5, it tells us that the test of someone who claims to be a prophet from God, who's performing signs, you have to ask the question, does this square with God's word? Does what he's, is what he is saying uh, consistent with the word of God? And if they applied that test to Deuteronomy 13, if they applied that test to Jesus, they would have to conclude that he is not a sinner and therefore maybe we're misinterpreting the Sabbath. Maybe we don't understand the purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus even will say to them, man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. You're not getting it. Well, they were divided. And instead of turning to God's word to determine who he was in relation to his claims and his signs, they actually actually turned to this man to get his opinion. Remember, these are the experts in the word of God. He, however, was a formerly blind beggar who literally had never seen a Bible. Yet he's able to conclude he's a prophet. It's right there at the end of verse 17. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet. Jesus is not simply a prophet. We understand this. He's nothing less than a prophet, though. Think again of this man's progression as he says this. He simply obeyed Jesus' command to go and wash back at the beginning. Go and wash. He went and washed, and he came back seeing He named Jesus as the one who healed him. He identified with Jesus in some way, and now he declares him to be a prophet. The point is, this man is moving closer and closer to embracing the truth. Again, we're seeing this conversion in, in slow motion here. All the while, Jesus' enemies continue to harden their hearts. And we can really see their hardening of their hearts as they question his parents. In verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. How he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. 
And John adds in verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents had said, he's of age, ask him. Now, there's something subtle, there's a lot subtle here, but there's one subtle thing I want you to notice, and that is this. John has now switched from calling them the Pharisees to now in verse 18, he calls them the Jews. And I think the reason for this switch is that that they've now called in the scribes. They've called in the lawyers. See, the the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they will call this group of religious leaders, they will call them the scribes and the Pharisees. John just simply calls them the Jews, generally. But the, the scribes were the political leaders, or the, the Pharisees were the political leaders, and the scribes were the lawyers. These were politicians and lawyers. John just simply calls them the Jews. The reason I point this out is because of the fear of the parents here. This went from being a, an informal questioning of a suspect to an actual courtroom trial. See, it's, it's likely that the, the events here in this chapter, they're kind of spread out over time. When we read this sort of just one verse after another, it almost looks like it happens immediately in in one fell swoop. But I I think it's actually spread out over time, possibly days, maybe even weeks. And, And none of the religious leadership believed the testimony of this man, that he had been born blind. They didn't even believe that until they called his parents, until they put the fear of God, or at least their own manipulation of God and his word and his law until they were able to put that into his parents, that fear. They didn't believe. This account is pretty easy to understand as you read through this, especially in kind of the courtroom setting. One of the other things that kind of stands out is is their fear. And the Jews could see this. The lawyers and the politicians, they could see this fear. And John explains it there in verse 22. But John doesn't tell us explicitly if they believe or not. He doesn't tell us if they believe in Christ or not. I think this is because of what we would call today spiritual abuse on the part of these Jews, these religious leaders. Look at verse 19 and see if this isn't badgering the witness. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? This isn't a genuine question. They're badgering them. Put yourself in mom and dad's shoes. They have a disabled son. They'd had to lead him around by the hand for his entire life. They would have to care for him long beyond what the neighbors had to care for their own children. They would have to care for their son. In this society, do you think... He had many friends. He was a beggar. Do you think his parents second-guessed every decision they've ever made? Do you think that they wept over the fact that their son couldn't really work but was consigned to to a lifetime of begging on the streets with the rest of the least of these? Do you think they read the verses about one of the punishments for sin I read last week? In Deuteronomy, one of the punishments for sin was blindness. Do you think they read those verses and blamed themselves? 
Do you think that they prayed that God would somehow swap their good eyes with his so that he could see? Do you think they were afraid about what would happen to them, to him, after they were gone? About who would take care of him? Yet they were so afraid of these religious leaders that they didn't want to get involved. He's a grown man. Ask him. That's our son. He was born blind. He sees now. How or who? You're going to have to ask him. Their fear is deep. We could go down a long road here about spiritual abuse at the hand of authoritarian leaders, but that's not the point of this text. But just compare their fear with their son's growing boldness as the attention turns back to him there in verse 24. Look at his boldness, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, well, this is an amazing thing. Do you not know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never in the world, never since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Right away, the, the Jewish leadership here attempt to manipulate him. Give glory to God. And he responds essentially with, look at the evidence. That's pretty much what we're seeing here as he explains what has happened. They're all hoping that this man, with the pressure of the court, that this man will condemn Jesus. They're looking to, to build their support base. Maybe they're hoping that they can, they, if they can win the vote of this guy, if they can win the support of this guy, no doubt at this point, this is the most popular beggar in the city of Jerusalem right now. If they can win the support of this guy, then they'll get all of the, the votes of all the beggars. It seems to be how politics works. But he doesn't bite. In fact, in verse 25, he gives them a direct challenge. It looks like a dodge, but it's actually a direct challenge. Verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He's saying to them, look, you're the religious experts, but here's one thing I know. I once was blind, but now I see. They're supposed to know the religious implications behind this. They're the experts, and they're asking him. And so in verse 26, they they counter him with accusations. He answers those courageously, and and he digs his heels in there in verse 27. 
You can see the the back and forth here as they go back and forth in these next verses. You can see it as he he turns away from their system of of legalism and and intimidation. And and he does this because of the grace that Christ has shown him. I'll let you read those verses and you can see his courageous words. His parents are scared to death of these people. And this guy who not very much earlier, however long it was, had been sitting in the dirt, I don't know, with a cup and a sign, hoping that someone would throw some change into the cup. This guy who had never seen anything is standing up to these scribes and Pharisees, standing up to the religious leaders. He's a little bit sarcastic which makes me love this guy. He's a little bit sarcastic. This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. But don't miss this also in verse 27. I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple, his disciples? He's not afraid of them anymore. What can they do to him? Pluck out his eyes? Been there. And now I've got the memories of seeing things. In some measure, even here, he's identifying as a disciple. He's gone from simple obedience, go and wash. He went and washed, came back seeing. To some form of identifying with the man Jesus who healed me. To saying, well, he's, he's a prophet, and he's no less than a prophet, but he's certainly more than that. Now he's saying, do you guys want to be his disciple too? In the face of the reviling and the persecution and the condemnation, you can see this all the way down through verse 34. He's growing in his faith in God. I, I can't read this. I can't help but think of Romans chapter 8. We read verse 28, and I wonder, this wasn't written when he was a child, but I wonder how many times people had said to him as they put something along the lines of, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's true. Sometimes we can use it as a cliche. It'll all work out in the end. But really what I think of as I see that that it came true for him is verse 31, when Paul says, what, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, and in this guy's case, even sight? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or Pharisees? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This guy's coming to believe that. You could see his bravery as he stands up to them. And then, of course, this is exactly where Jesus finds him. Verse 38. No, verse 35. He found him the first time and he finds him again. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him. And the idea is that Jesus went looking for this guy. Jesus went looking for this man. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now there's a detail that I want to point out. He went and washed and came back seeing. By the time he comes back seeing, Jesus is not there anymore. Jesus finds the guy here in verse 35, looks him in the eyes, says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You have seen him. You have seen him. This whole scene, this whole chapter is about this moment. It's about this man's final confession. Lord, I believe. It's about his worship. But even before that, it's about Jesus finding this man and giving him the ultimate healing of seeing Christ. This is about his seeing Christ. And as the chapter closes... We can catch a glimpse of the ultimate reality, not just for this man in those last couple of verses, but also for those who have rejected and refused to see him. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. And he said to him, are, are we also blind? And there's mockery in that question. Are we also blind? Do you know who we are? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind... You'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They're condemned. These people are condemned, but this man is saved. You have seen him, and he is speaking to you. And his response is final. His final confession of faith is, Lord, I believe. pray. Lord, this is our final confession of faith. I believe. It is our prayer that we would see and believe. That we would confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. There is Really, there's only two groups of people, those who believe and those who don't, those who are blind and those who see. Help us to see. 
Father, we pray that your name would be glorified in our hearts as well as our lips. We believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.